In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. This Sunday, we are on the fourth Sunday of Lent, which means that we have crossed the halfway point of Lent. And so typically, the fourth Sunday in Lent is highlighted or emphasized with a lightening of the pyramid colors from violet to rose, and this recognition that we're making our way through the season of Lent. So there's a, a bit of relief. Um, often the readings for this week deal with, I was blind, but now I see. It's taking on a different tone as we prepare after this Sunday to have a shift very markedly towards Palm Sunday and Passion Week or Holy Week. This year, however, instead of focusing on the Lent 4 readings, we are observing the feast of St. Joseph, the guardian of Jesus, which is Joseph as in Mary and Joseph, uh, the parents of Jesus. And so it's the feast of St. Joseph, the guardian of Jesus. And I did a little digging into how is the feast of St. Joseph observed? Because typically feast days are observed with feasting. That's why they're called feast days as we honor the saints who've come before us. And often there's a food that's associated with that day or there's some kind of revelry if you look back into the history of the church. But St. Joseph is a little bit different because his day always falls in Lent. Easter cannot fall before the Feast of St. Joseph. And sometimes his day does actually fall in Holy Week. This happened a couple of years ago. And so the church has to figure out what does it do with a feast day that falls in Lent. And the adaptations around it vary depending on what part of the world you're from. So some of the European countries actually treat St. Joseph's Day as Father's Day. And that's when they observe Father's Day, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I, and I was aware of that, that their father's, father and mother's day don't, they don't line up with ours. Right. Yeah. And so some European countries will treated as Father's Day, but if it falls during Holy Week, it will be transferred to another time of the year. They'll just pick up the day and move it and say this year it's going to be the week after Easter or something like that. So it's not observed during Holy Week. And then I was looking at, so what do they do for the feasting portion of the feast? And some countries, um, Italy, some parts of Italy, for example, will, for the feast, use a red tablecloth because red is the color of saints days on that day and they will feast on meatless pasta dishes and so they still fast from from meat um, but will have a special pasta dish that day but a majority of the countries saw it as a reversal of feasting and so they would have a more strict fast on march 19th and so they would have a stricter fast, and instead of eating the food themselves, they would set up altars in their yard for those who were hungry to come and get food. Again, with a red tablecloth on it as a way to offer food to the homeless or the needy in the community. And so they would do that in, in exchange on the Feast of St. Joseph. 
And the idea being that um, they were observing a fast in order to bless their neighbor. And even in some of the um, art that comes out of the Renaissance and Reformation, when you look at the flight into Egypt, which is the reading for St. Joseph's Day, it's not uncommon to see Mary and Joseph passing out alms to the poor on their way to Egypt, which I thought was an interesting thing that was included, the idea being they were a blessing to others no matter where they went. Be, beyond that, um, most saints are associated with, with something. Mm -hmm. And I think, is, isn't St. Joseph associated with being a, like the protector because he's the father of the family? And maybe that's, that explains why it's, it's very frequently used as a, as a church name. St. Saint, Saint Joseph right. is, a, is a fairly common church name. Right, and he is seen as the one who, well, he is the guardian saint for carpenters, um, but he's also seen as the one who's tasked with giving a home to God. Uh, and so when we look at the readings, the Old Testament reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where King David says to Nathan, things are good, I'm going to build a temple. And God says, no, Solomon's going to do it. You will not build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. And that's paired with the gospel reading out of Matthew because the idea is the house that God is building for David out of David's line is actually the house that protects his son. And so David never gets to build a literal temple because he is building the house in which God will dwell when his son uh, is born and entrusted to the care of Joseph. And so we see this all coming into play as this feast day is observed and celebrated. Um, the other interesting thing I found is uh, a lot of congregations in order, if they're going to observe St. Joseph, will instead of observing it on March 19th, if March 19th is a Sunday, will transfer it to March 20th. That is another historical uh, adjustment that is made so that you don't disrupt the Sundays. And so a lot of Roman Catholic dioceses this year will have Lent 4 on March 19th, St. Joseph's Day, but then those who are observing the solemnity of St. Joseph, which is what, what it's technically called, will return to a service on Monday, March 20th, to observe the Feast of St. Joseph, or the solemnity of St. Joseph. So just some interesting historical context around the day. We are observing it on March 19th because it falls on the Sunday. Um, rarely do we transfer a saint's day to a Sunday. We just, if they happen to be on a Sunday, we'll observe them. And if they don't, then we won't. I don't believe we have observed St. Joseph's Day in the 12 years I've been here. I don't think it's fallen on a Sunday that has also not been something else we need to observe. Well, that is incorrect because um, uh, I looked back and found that we had observed it in 2017. It also fell on a Sunday. Okay. So, so, it, so it was six years ago. Um, I had forgotten. Perhaps the vicar well, was the preacher that day. It might be because often this is also the Sunday that I have the vicars preach because one of the um, pedagogical things that I do with them is they preach, get, they get weekly preaching practice through the season of Lent but in order to also illustrate and help them learn how to write sermons at a, under a time crunch, one time during the Lenten season, they will preach a Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, all back to back. And normally the fourth Sunday in Lent is one that's assigned to them. That's not happening this year because we're ending the Consecrated Steward series. And so for Vicar DeBoer, it will be next Sunday that he gets the Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday sequence. 
And before we launch into talking about this uh, epistle for this Sunday, um, it's the epistle that belongs with the set of readings for St. Joseph, not Correct. for the fourth Sunday of, of, of Lent. Correct. And so this <laughs> epistle will be for, it's specifically chosen for the Feast of St. Joseph, which also allows us to ask the question of why. So unlike other readings where we've talked about how the epistle is often a continuous reading and it's just there because it's the next thing in the sequence, when we have a feast day, that epistle and that Old Testament reading is specifically chosen because it's intending to teach us something that we need to understand for that day. And so uh, at the end of this, that will be the question that we need to return to. And so don't let me forget to come back to that of why this epistle for this day. And so the epistle reading is Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Could you read us for us, please, verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Thank you. So the last couple of weeks, we've taken time to deal with definitions. We've defined sanctification, and we did define righteousness. Do you remember how we defined righteousness? In the state of being right with God. Right, yeah. the state of being right with God or um, being in line with what God would desire. So I can remember back to high school, my English teacher saying, you can't use a part of the word to define a word. <laughs> well... <laughs> And, and that's a good rule. Miss Lutz would be very happy to know that I remember that rule of definition. She was a big fan of, of language rules. Um, and so we can't use, we, beyond just saying, being in the state of being right with God, righteousness is being in line with God, uh, that you are lined up with who he is and the desires he has. So we have in this first sentence that Abraham and his offspring are heirs of the world, not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so Paul in this moment is setting these two things against one another, the law versus righteousness of faith. Now, it's interesting that he doesn't say righteousness of the law like he does righteousness of faith, because he could have. And so why does he not use righteousness according to the law? Well, the reality is nobody can be righteous according to the law. The law always shows the way that we have sinned, and the moment it shows a sin, you can no longer be righteous according to the law. And so he's acknowledging this in the fact that he doesn't even put righteousness paired with the law, but instead it's a righteousness of faith. And so if it's a righteousness of faith, what about our faith makes us righteous? Our faith is always placed in something, and the faith is placed in Christ. And so it becomes Christ that makes us righteous, not the law. And so it's what Christ has done, not what we are doing, that causes us to be right with God. And in doing so, he makes this point that Abraham and his offspring are heirs of the world. And the promise is, and so the heirs of the world, meaning that the promise for us 
is that creation is something that is a blessing to God's people. God uses it to bless us in this life in the same way that he promises the blessing to Abraham, and he promises that our eternal life is anchored in this creation as well. That's why at the end of the creed we say, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, that this creation in which we live now is not a place we should desire to escape, but one that we celebrate that God has given to us. Now, the term new creation is, is not used when we hear the story of, of Abraham in the Old Testament, but it's, right. a, but it's a wonderful parallel right. that's created there. Yeah, that Abraham is given the promised land, of land flowing with milk and honey. All of these things are, are there, and he spends his life longing for it. Um, and he knows that God will keep that promise. And God's promise can give us life. What is the, the only thing the law can deliver? Well, um, when we talk about the uses of the law, well, this, in, in this particular passage, it's, it's a mirror. Right. It's showing us where, where we've fallen short. And it, it really just it, it shows how we've fallen short of the glory of God and, and, and um, uh, how we need to be restored. Right. And if all it does is show you how you've fallen short, the only thing it can do is deliver you the consequences of that shortcoming, right. which is yeah. the wrath of God. And so in verse 15, Paul says, for the law brings wrath. And so that's what the law can deliver. And yet the righteousness of faith delivers us to the promise that we are heirs of this world. Now, when I was reading about this, uh, the one of the devotions that I read on this was we often think about the world as belonging to the wicked because we see the wickedness of the world. And we even talk about how temptation comes from our sinful nature, Satan, and the world. And so we tend to think of world as this, this thing that is wicked, that is depraved, that is, is not worth our consideration. But the author of that made the point that Christians have the promise that this world belongs to us, that in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, this creation belongs to us. It does not belong to the wicked. The wicked are cast off of this or cast off of this world or out of this world to be burned in hell. Uh, that is where they are headed. Our promised destination is here. Now, perfectly restored and without the consequences of sin, but it's still here. And I, I really appreciated that different way of, of framing that. Then he closes this section with an interesting phrase. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. And it's worth pausing to consider what is he saying here. He's not saying that without the law there's an absence of sin. So I think it's very easy to read this and think, oh, well, if people don't know the law, then they can't sin. That's great. That's not what he's saying, because back in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, he's already asserted that people can sin. And the fact that people die without knowing the law tells you that they still sin, because the wages of sin is death. And so if we could ever find a, a loophole, it would be people who never heard the law would never die. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that 
you cannot tr transgress the law until you've heard the law. You can't know the specific name of what you've done. However, you can still sin against God because you are not right with him. You are not lined up with him. And so transgression here specifically deals with the law as opposed to sin. Now, is the transgression of the law a sin? Absolutely. Because, but we've named it. And so when he talks about transgression here, he's talking specifically about the law as we would know it from the Ten Commandments. And it fits kind of nicely with the idea of how often do we need to be forgiven? Because, um, you know, the, the argument is, is that, well, how often should we, should we ask for forgiveness? How often should we um, receive uh, the grace of God through the Lord's Supper? Well, have you sinned in between? Well, yes, you have. And we often use the phrase, um, the sins of which we are unaware. Just being, our, our being, uh, mm -hmm. we are, are sinful creatures. So there's no way to avoid it. Right. And not only is there no way to avoid it, but we also don't recognize a lot of the sin because we've become numb to it. Um, it's... It's like we've built up a tolerance to it and don't even notice that it's there. It's kind of like when you're flipping through television and you stop and watch a show and afterwards you think, well, that wasn't really edifying or worth my time. And yet you watch it anyway because we're so <laughs> numb to it. It's just there. Let's continue on then. Uh, let's look at verses 16 through 18. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So here he's reminding us that our inheritance depends not on what we have done, but on what Christ has done. And we receive that through our faith in him. So that the promise rests on his grace. When we say that, that it rests on God's grace, who then gets credit for handing out the inheritance? It's, it's Christ. It's yeah, Christ. Yeah. It's God. And I think that it's very prudent that Paul uses the phrase inheritance here because the whole point of the inheritance, even in, in the earthly sense of an inheritance, is that it's a gift that's given to you. The person isn't obligated to pass it down to you. Um, and it's not something that you built and earned. It's those who've come before you have amassed whatever wealth is being transferred from one generation to the next. It's theirs, and they built it, and now they're giving it to you. And in the same way, the inheritance that we receive from God is built by God and created by God, and then he passes it down to us. Although I could, I could perceive that there would be some who, you know, spoiled spoiled children who would insist that, no, you, I, I am owed this. Oh, I've talked to more than one person who is convinced that they are owed their inheritance. Um, and that's not an uncommon thing to encounter in the culture either. I mean, 
I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker on the back of a giant motorhome that says I'm spending my child's inheritance as if their child was owed that in the first place. Um, now we can talk biblically about gifting an inheritance to your, the future generations and Ecclesiastes does have a lot of guidance on that. But what's but still it is a gift. It's a blessing to them. It's not something that they are inherently owed simply because they were your offspring. Well, and the other nice thing about it is, is you don't, you really don't, well, you know what the promise is, but you don't appreciate the inheritance until you, it's actually given to you. Right. Well, you shouldn't. Right. You also hear the stories of people who spent their parents' inheritance before they received it, <laughs> and they find themselves in quite the pickle. But the premise remains the same. And this is, this is another way we can see the world corrupted by sin. It's, it's a good analogy because it's something we've experienced, but it's imperfect because we can't see it apart from the sin of the world. And so as we go through this then, we are able to uh, hear uh, Paul's right in verse 17, the promise that was given to Abraham. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So here we get a description of God, and it's an. In, I like how he defines God here. God is defined as the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. He's the creator. He's the creator. Mm -hmm. He's the final say of things. Only he can bring the dead back to life and create something from nothing. He's the only one who can make this claim. And so if you are appealing to authority to make your argument, so if you remember again back to English class, there's the different appeals that you can make in writing. One of them is an appeal to authority. Here, the authority to which Paul is appealing is God as creator. And how do you trump that? But Abraham believed in hope, or in hope he believed against hope, that he would be the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And so we see Abraham has hope, he has faith, and Hebrews will say, and this is counted to him as righteousness. So he is declared to be righteous not because of what he does. And if we read the life of Abraham, he has some goofs along the way. What makes him righteous, what makes him in line with what God has intended is the faith in the promise, that God would keep that promise. His faith is in God and the fact that God does what he says. And Abraham, I know I've mentioned this before, but it just he's such a key figure that it's, it really shouldn't surprise us that then that he's such a central figure to Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That, right. that just this father figure of, of the, you know, the progenitor mm -hmm. of, of the, whole, the whole peoples. Right. Yes, and so we have this all being laid out for us in Romans, which brings us back to the question I raised at the beginning. Why this text for the Feast of St. Joseph? Because it, it's, you have that image of, of, of fatherhood, of, of, of Abraham. Right. Yes, so there's this, this image of fatherhood back to Father Abraham, and the promise is all over this. And what do we see with St. Joseph? He is entrusted with the promise being fulfilled. 
And so we start with the Old Testament with David, uh, hearing about David, you will not build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. We have Abraham, the father of many nations, who's believing in the promise. So there's two promises there. And then we look at the gospel reading from St. Joseph, where we see Joseph and given the task of uh, the reading as the flight to Egypt. And so uh, of Joseph caring for Jesus by protecting him from harm, providing him a home, and beginning to raise him towards adulthood. But, but to also trust in God as, a, as an act of faith. I mean, Abraham with his own son, and then, right. and then uh, this uh, preposterous thing that, you know, that, that Joseph was supposed to carry out, right. that, that as an act of faith, he said, I will do it. Joseph had to do a lot of things on faith, because if your fiancé comes to you and says, I'm pregnant, and by the way, God's the father, the only way you believe that <laughs> is by faith. Um, that the angel who brings the message is speaking truth to you. So as we look ahead to Sunday, we have a couple of competing themes because, well, not competing, they're complementary, but trying to figure out what emphasis of those themes do we pull forward. Are we going to be looking at the Feast of St. Joseph in our hymns today, or are we going to be looking at the theme of the consecrated stewards that we've been following and, and bringing to fruition this Sunday? Well, it's your suggestion and encouragement. I think we'll we'll do the latter. We'll we'll focus on being consecrated, um, because um, the hymn I selected has it right there in the second line. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. I don't think you can really hit the mark much more right. more in the bullseye than than that. Well, and the rest of the hymn goes on to lay out what does it mean to live as one who is called to do holy things with what you've been had entrusted to your care. And the hymn lays that paradigm out for us. If you have a Lutheran service book handy, it is hymn 783, although it also appears at 784, the same text, because uh, in kind of a rare rarity in the hymnal, it's the same text with two different tunes. There aren't a whole lot of those in the hymnal. The only one I could think of off the top of my head is Away in a Manger, which has two different tunes to it. But uh, this, this one also does. Doesn't A Mighty Fortress appear twice? Well, it's the same tune, but they're different rhythms. And because the rhythms are different, they've changed the words a little bit. So um, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a different case okay. entirely. So um, you're looking for examples where the text is exactly the same in both In this case, instances. they are yeah, exactly the same because the poetic meter is such that you can you can do that with the two different tunes. Now with a mighty fortress, because there's a different number of syllables in the lines, because of the the, the meter changes and all that, it, it doesn't it's not the same translation. Um, which if you sing the wrong one, I I, I always hear about it because uh, oh, yes. people are very very particular about that. Um, they've often memorized one or the other and. Um, as long as we're talking about that, this particular hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, was a, I, I think, an unfortunate victim of, of the, the effort to update text in the 1982 hymn, The Lutheran Worship. Um, in fact, the very first line, Take my life, O Lord, renew. Well, you had to change it because the second line had to rhyme with you. So um, anyone who had memorized it as take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee was, was you know, very frustrated because of these, these changes in the, in the poetry. To their credit, the editors of this hymnal decided, oh, 
it's it's just not worth it. We we need to go back to the original poetry. Right. And if I remember correctly, the way they made the second line rhyme with renew was it became take my life, O Lord, renew, consecrated Lord to you. To you, right. Yes. You, re, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it works, but it, it, I, I think it doesn't have the, the beauty of the original poetry. Um, the rhyme scheme through all the stanzas is an A-A-B-B, so it's a very predictable rhyme scheme. And that means that the first two, two patterns first two lines rhyme, rhyme and together. then the second two yes. rhyme together. Yeah, and the, the poetic meter of it is seven, 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 seven. So there's seven syllables in, in, in each line. The, um, the author of the text, Frances Havergal, um, she was the daughter of the composer of the tune that we typically use. So her father, William Havergal, was a, was a, uh, a, a priest in the Church of England. And then, so she grew up in that tradition and was very skilled in languages, wrote a lot of poetry, um, also a skilled, skilled musician, but she dedicated herself to uh, focusing mostly or only on sacred music. Apparently she was gifted enough, she was encouraged to sing professionally, but she said, no, no, I will, I will, only, do, I will only do sacred music. So did she write the text for his tune or did he write a tune for his, her text? She wrote the text for his tune, which to me says, this is really the best pairing. Right. That she had that tune in, in her mind when she wrote this. Now, interestingly, um, there are two, there, there's another tune, and, and we have the other one in the hymnal, that's used in other parts of, of the church. Uh, I think it's, it's mostly uh, Methodists and Presbyterians that use the other tune. And the editors of our hymnal decided, well, there's enough people perhaps that grew up in those traditions or were exposed to it, it's worth putting in this other tune. Um, I think I'd probably disagree. When you, know, when you know that the author of the text wrote it for her father's tune, to me it says, why would, why would you entertain uh, another tune to go with it? Right, I, and I would agree. If, if, especially when it's a tune that is very approachable, easily sung, and meets all of the requirements you need for something to work well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, and, and, and I'll come back to Stephen Starkey, who has a lot of texts in our hymnal. His, his stated method of writing new hymn texts is the tune is in his head to start with. And my guess is that was the same for, for Francis, is that she heard this tune of her father's and thought, I can, I can, I can craft a very nice poem to go with that. Well, and the other benefit we have with this hymn is because she writes it in English, the poetry remains intact for us. It, it's not having to be forced through some kind of translation that either is going to lose its meaning or lose its rhyme in order for it to work in our language. Right. Her sentiments, her sentiments are just spot on for what she wanted to achieve in this. And part of it was influenced by a, a, a pamphlet that she had encountered uh, at this particular point in her life. By the way, it was, it was about 1874 that she wrote this hymn. So it's very close to 150, exactly 150 years ago that she wrote this. And she wrote it near the end of her life. Right. And at this time in Great Britain, there was, uh, from about 1870 to 1876, there was this movement called the Great Awakening. 
And what it was is this, this uh, uh, religious movement that um, it, it kind of comes out of Wesleyanism, that, that it was uh, a movement towards a more authentic, uh, deeper faith, and which is something that we as Lutherans have a real ambivalent relationship with, because sure, we want to have a deeper faith, but we don't, we don't emphasize the, the idea that uh, you need to have some kind of emotional experience or, or uh, uh, a feeling to confirm that, yeah, that your faith is, is strong and your faith is, is, is genuine. Right, and to a degree, the text of this hymn shows you that that's what's in her mind in the fact that every verse begins with, take my something right it's a me my it definitely is a focus on the individual which makes some some lutherans a little skittish mm -hmm. because there's too much i and me and right now i just was looking at her dates she dies quite young she's 43 when she passes and it's actually not long after her father's passing only only about uh nine or ten years after her father's passing so um uh yeah um uh, a relatively short time span. Does she have other hymns in our hymnal? She does. She does not. Um, her father has another tune in our hymnal, but she only has this one particular text. Um, as far as being really prolific, she wasn't like a Charles Wesley. Okay. Where, you know, six six thousand hymns. So. And what do you know? Happen to know off the top of your head what the other tune is that he has? Uh, the tune name is Evan, which I think is, um, <laughs> you put me on the spot. I did. Um, um, I think it's Savior again to thy dear name we raise. I think that's, I think that's, a, it's a, it's a, a parting hymn. If, 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 if I remember It's correctly. hymn 707. I'm looking it up. Okay. Well, thank you for doing that. Um, and while oh, that the Lord would guide my ways. Oh, wrong text. Okay. Oh, that the Lord would guide my ways, which which kind of fits with uh, with with this uh, as well, kind of a, and, a similar sentence. Yeah, it's also a very short tune, mm -hmm. and has similar hallmarks to it. In fact, is it the same meter as, as well, the same poetic meter? Uh, it is. I I lost the poetic meter, but it looks like okay. it's got to be pretty close. But even when you look at it, it almost looks like it's a very similar melody line, just with a different rhythm inside of it. The two definitely are related. And if we look at this text a little bit more closely, um, uh, obviously in, the, in that first stanza it mentions being consecrated, but it has a nice rounded form to it. So if we go to the, to the very last stanza, uh, take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Apparently she took these last two lines or this, this last line especially, ever only all for thee is, is kind of a, a motto that she would use to sign her letters uh, with. Coming back to that idea of being fully consecrated, just really embodying this idea of the great awakening that, that was the movement that was happening around her at that time. But if we look more closely at the, the sentiments in the other stanzas, stanza two, take my hands and let them move, talks about your feet, um, let your feet be swift and beautiful. Uh, a, a reference to Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who, who preach the gospel. And um, stanza three, take my voice and let me sing. Well, that was a kind of a personal uh, 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 
thing for her because she had a gift of a beautiful voice and she was musically talented. So she wanted to dedicate that to the well, service. It also makes me think back to, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, <laughs> which is the psalm that we had last Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, stanza four, take my silver and my gold. I think sometimes this is used as an, um, uh, an offertory hymn, um, maybe taking um, that stanza paired with the first one, perhaps, but you could you could hear that as a possibility. It would be used as an offertory stanza. And that uh, is how I knew this growing up. You did, okay. Yes. And a reference to, because it's, it's got the word might in it, not a might would I withhold. Well, how often do you see that? And then you think of, oh, the story of the widow's might. Right. Yeah, the number of references to other stories and images out of Scripture that she's able to pack into this relatively short text is really quite remarkable. And to somebody who's, who's fairly biblically literate, I think you just, you just automatically, uh, you, your mind just actually fills that in. Right. Oh, yeah, that's, that's that story. Oh, yeah, that's that story that I know quite well. And then stanza five, take my will and make it mine, is actually uh, uh, a nice reference to Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. And then, as I mentioned earlier, stanza six kind of brings us back to that idea of being consecrated again, ever, only, all for thee. It's the very last line of the hymn that you hear. Um, so for, um, for our purposes today, um, would, would you like to take a stab at the other two? It just for variety well i know the other tune we can okay that. okay that's good because i think not everybody does um let's um why don't we sing why don't we sing stanzas one and two um to the tune that most of us know which is patmos which by the way the tune name patmos is is the island that uh that uh, john was um, um the greek island where john wrote the book of revelation right. And if you'd like to see it, there's the opportunity to go in October with um, some of our congregation. Yes, this, this paid advertisement sponsored by. <laughs> um, so let's, let's sing the first two stanzas to Patmos, uh, which is 783, and we'll sing the, how about the last two stanzas to um, Hendon, which is 784. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour, 
at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee. That is hard to switch from one to the other. Well, there are two different keys, but I, we didn't do too badly. <laughs> it's hard to get the common one out of your head. I think it would have been easier to go the other direction, oh. from the less familiar to the familiar. I think you're right. So if we ever do that again, let's go the other way. <laughs> Let us pray. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord Jesus Christ, at this hour you hung upon the cross, stretching out your loving arms to embrace the world in your death. Grant that all people of the earth may look to you and see their salvation. For your mercy's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.